from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Sugata Ray of the History of Art Department discussing his book, Climate Change and the Art of Devotion, Geoaesthetics in the Land of Krishna, 1550-1850. He is joined by Whitney Davis, also of the History of Art Department. So Shugata and I have a, a quick plan. I'm going to make a very brief introduction to the book. Shugata will make a more extended comment on the book. If you've read it, you will be glad for the review. If you haven't read it, you'll get some perspective on it. Then I've got some questions and thoughts to pitch at him, and then we'll turn over to the audience. First, a disclaimer, I am not a South Asianist. Uh, no qualifications whatsoever to speak about the substance of Shigata's book. Um, my engagement with it is uh, as someone with a very long-term interest in the intersections between the analysis of climate variability and change and the history of art. Um, my own interest being in the big ice age of the Pleistocene, the aridification of the Sahara uh, in North Africa, and the rise of riverine civilizations in the Near East and ancient Egypt um, as a consequence of long-term climatic variability and climate shift. So let me read a paragraph from Shigata's book, which will get us going. It's a, uh, from the introduction in which he says quite succinctly what he's all about, what the book's all about. Crucially for us, it was during a period of catastrophic climatic upheavals that devotees of Krishna traveled to Braj to discover the sites associated with the Hindu god's life on earth. In time, an extraordinary place-oriented theology emerged, one that not only centralized the veneration of the natural environment, but also perceived each stone, water body, and tree in the pilgrimage center as sacred and effervescent with imminent energy. Drawing on this sacramental theology, a rich visual culture that triangulated affective aesthetics, political governance, and natural resource management also emerged in the region. This visual culture, which found concrete articulation only after the commencement of a climatic epoch that led to catastrophic droughts in North India beginning in the 1550s is the subject of this book. Thank you. Shigata, please. So thank you, Whitney. Uh, and also thanks, thanks to the Townsend Center for having us here. I finished the book here two years back, so it's great to be back. And I'm very grateful to the Townsend Center for providing a space to think interdisciplinary, to think about how to write, and giving us the time and space to write. So thank you. What I have been assigned by Whitney is to talk broadly about what this, this new thing that's, that everyone is talking about, eco-art history, what that is, and then try to draw it in in my own book, which talks about climate change and, and uh, so as an art historian, I work with images, so. In 2011, the Delhi-based artist Asim Waqif presented an installation titled Help, Yamuna's Protest. Waqif placed the word help, which he had fashioned out of plastic bottles and LED lights, in the river Yamuna. 
The installation, as it is visible in Wakif's prints, appears to suggest, suggest against the grain of reason that the river can think for itself and is capable of expressing in English <laughs> extreme distress <laughs> over its own polluted plight. Wakif, of course, is not the only contemporary artist to engage with the fluid nature of the limits and boundaries of what constitutes the object of environmental discourse. As we face catastrophic climate change and large-scale environmental uh, devastation globally, artists across the world are exploring how art practice, political ecologies, and environmental activism can challenge the anthropocentrism of human sovereignty over the environment. On the screen, uh, we have a still from, the, from a film by a London-based art collective, the Autolet Group, on geological time and the seismic history of California. This particular film focuses on how tectonic forces express themselves in the landscape, from the fault line deep below to appearances above ground, such as hairline fractures in cast concrete on the highways that really stands in for California, or 20th century California. EcoArt, as it is now provisionally called, then offers a new possibility of being in the world, of seeing humans and the natural environment as inextricably intertwined, or even endowing non-human objects, forces, and life forms with agentive power. Artistic engagements with and response to the natural env environment is, however, hardly a new phenomenon. In his vivid description of the marble-clad interiors of Justinian's sixth-century church of Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, the poet Paul de Salenteri describes the wall as a landscape of marble meadows, highlighting the distant origins and visual effect of the material. In effect, the poet produced an ecological vision of the church one that attached meaning to the flow of raw material, trade routes, labor, across a wide and diverse terrain. In the early modern period, the period that I work on, emperors and merchants in Florence or in Delhi established gardens as a form of managing and mastering the natural environment. Such attempts to both visualize and establish large-scale gardens was, scholars have suggested, an imposing technique aimed at controlling the natural environment by reordering it. To stop at this mapping of power and authority, to stop by charting a history of human intervention in managing, ordering, aestheticizing, reifying, defying, or transforming the natural environment, however, would mean stopping just short of a methodological move provisionally described as eco-art history. My book proposes that eco-art history offers a methodological shift in art history, one that is receptive to the agentive force of the earth in relation to human action on it. As a discipline, art history, like most other forms of historical practices, takes objects, structures, visual representations produced by the human species as its principal archive and locus of analysis. Consequently, artists, patrons, audiences emerge 
as the primary agent in this history. It's only in the 2000s that the contrapuntal pressure of post-colonial eco-philosophy and new materialism profoundly transformed the disciplinary horizons of art history. And here I'm referring to the work of Deepesh Chakraborty or Jane Bennett and among others. This new turn was symptomatic of the intellectual debates that were unfolding across disciplines as the looming threat of global warming became more and more tangible. We were crossing the tipping point at an accelerated speed. It is in this context that Chakraborty proposed that the human species now exercise a geological force on the planet on the scale of volcanoes or tectonic plates. This, this intervention then forces us to think of art history beyond both anthropocentric and biocentric models that privilege a singular autonomous agent, which itself is a product of enlightenment thought. Such a line of inquiry can perhaps also offer a reconceptualization of art history's ontological and epistemological scope, given the anthropocentric exceptionalism that we allocate to the conceptual category called the human. Uh, let me offer an example from my book. In the 1590s, an enormous sandstone temple to Krishna was consecrated in the pilgrimage center of Braj, the primary center for Krishna worship in India. By the 19th century, this temple had been described in architectural history as the most impressive religious edifice Hindu art has ever produced. And by now, the temple has become a key monument for the history of early modern architecture in India. Scholars have read the color of the sandstone used to construct both the Mughal capital, very close to it, in Fatehpur Sikri, and the temple to, con to suggest that a new Hindu architectural typology emerged in this period in negotiation with contemporaneous Mughal architecture. Separated by 40 miles, both the Govindev Temple in Vrindavan in Braj and structures in Akbar's capital did share architectural similarities. For example, the use of serpentile columns or even the austere surface with limited uh, motifs. For scholars, this temple then becomes especially critical for an analysis of an Islamicate aesthetics in early modern South Asia that underscores cultural and creative interactions across political and religious boundaries. Now, much of this critical revisionism has happened in the last 10 or 15 years, especially after right-wing anti-Muslim politics has taken a virulent turn, further highlighting the importance of this temple that brought together Hindu and Muslim visual forms. In my book, which focuses on the art and architecture of this pilgrimage center during the droughts of the Little Ice Age, a period from the 1550s to the 1850s that saw droughts of unprecedented intensity in South America, Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, I take a different approach. Keeping in mind that much scholarship on climate change and art is located in the present, and the pre-modern or the pre-industrial is often presented as a period of ecological plentitude 
the idea of the idyllic, bucolic, the paradisical that always marks the pre-modern and contemporary scholarship. This book aimed to deracinate the pre-modern, deracinate our presentist assumption about the past. For instance, the mineralogical composition of the temple suggests that the temple was built using the same stone from a nearby hill that was considered alive by devotees and pilgrims. Now, we assume rocks are inert. Yet, according to local myths, the hill was a manifest form of Krishna and could sense pain if he was hurt. And if you, this is a 19th century votive painting that shows the hill as a divine body. So if this is the hill, so you have this hill god assemblage happening here. Stone in this context was perceived as immanent with vital energy. One could contend that it was, the, it was the alchemic quality of stone as elemental matter that concurrently made the hill a sacred site and a living being. And it was this sandstone that was used to construct the temple, thus shaping the theological and political prominence of the Govindev temple. Each chapter of this book focuses on a similar embodied ecological cluster in the pilgrimage site. Water, the river Yamuna, the Theophanic River Yamuna that traverses the region. Land, the hill that bleeds forests, the sacred groves of Braj, where Krishna roamed with his devotees and plants were seen as sentient beings. And finally, architecture that works with the idea of ether, the natural element that holds together the principal components of Braj's sacred ecosystem. Obscuring the boundaries between art and the natural environment, animate beings and inanimate matter, an engagement with the epistemic subjectivity of rocks, plants, rivers, then allowed me to explore the contours of an eco-art history. The idea of a Hindu temple seems predisposed for such a revisionist analysis. Histories of the Hindu temple from the early 20th century onwards have routinely emphasized the symbolic nature of architecture as a figurative representation of the universe, a microcosmic symbol of the primordial macrocosm. The new historicism of post-1980s art history has introduced questions of power, patronage, politics, but even today, most interpretations of the physical form of the temple customarily slip back to the symbolic reading of the temple as this representation of a primordial macrocosm. An eco-art history, in contrast, demands that we take the natural environment as constitutive rather than either symbolic or emblematic. Obscuring object-subject binaries it is the very substance of quartzite rock that becomes entangled in relational flows that intimately connect representation, theology, and the natural environment. An eco-art history can become operative when the history of art and architecture brings together and reconciles phenomenology with the everyday materiality of the natural environment. 
We can only talk about an eco-art history when we see this stone that I actually hacked from that particular rock, going against every sort of uh, ideas of how this uh, temple is a sentient being, or the rock is a sentient being. But what if we take this rock as Krishna? What sort of art history can emerge if this rock from this particular hill is seen as a form of Krishna? Such a gesture can have significant implications on how we engage with the materiality of art and architecture. In process, problematizing the purported rift between humans and the planet we inhabit. And that was the aim of the book. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was very helpful. Um, it reminds, one of your pairs of slides reminded me of uh, Fernand Brodel's famous comment in the preface to the Mediterranean, 1946 preface. History can do more than look beyond walled gardens. So I thought I would start off by asking you to say a little bit about um, a risk for your project that might emerge from the history of art history itself, not the last 15 years of the history of art history that you referenced just now, but the sort of long durée of our discipline which in some measure kicked off, as you say rightly in the introduction to your book, kicked off with a very strong environmental determinism, climatological, geographical, uh, topographical determinism. And I, I'm curious to hear you speak about how one doesn't risk um, uh, reinscribing that the, not so much the environmentalism, but the determinism. Um, you have very interesting and delicate ways of describing the complex interrelationships that you're discussing, but when push comes to shove and one asks you to specify the cause and effect relations that you're most strongly interested in excavating for us, um, in what sense can we avoid that earlier form of environmental determinism? Right, and, and, and Whitney, you're absolutely right. I think in a way we use this term in the last, we have been talking about eco-art history in the last 10 or 15 years maybe, or even a, maybe later. Um, but from the very beginning, Winkelmann, for instance, would talk about the, the, the climate of, of the Mediterranean producing better quality art. Uh, and its conceptual obverse was obviously the tropics, that is the colonies, was uh, uh, produced bad art. So this, this sort of relationship between climate and art making in a very deterministic way was embedded within sort of early art history. Uh, but what I think one can do is move beyond causality, and one could really use causality for any sort of intervention. Feminist art history could also be read as sort of a deterministic art history in a way. So, so the, 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 the problem of this determinism or, or trying to sort of read a very simplistic relationship between climate change and art is, is sort of a fraught uh, question that really runs through the history of art history. But what I hope, uh, and I really hope that uh, the sort of this new move that's happening with both a lot of colleagues in our department, for instance, have been talking about environment and art. Uh, and I can see Greg there, who actually both writes and teaches eco-art. Uh, what I think the whole move is not to be deterministic, is to really think about this as a form of creative practice. So I would locate uh, art making within a cluster, 
It's, it's multi-sided. Certainly there is non-environmental politics, there is theology, and climate change becomes one of the factors that lead to a rethinking of art and architectural history. So I pulled out some quotes from your book that kind of speak directly to your sense of the relationships you're, you're pointing at. Intersections between visual practices and large-scale transformations in the natural environment, moving between the creative practices and the terrans territorial climatic fields, seepages between the ecosystem and creative configuration, intersections between biophysics and the world of knowledge, culture, and power, rhizomatic entanglements between matter and life, shaped, as it were, by the global flow of water and air. Um, in light of that, that sense of your project, I'm curious about a couple of um, epistemic disjunctions, as you describe them, that you point to in your book and sort of thread through much of its thematics. One about the scale, the time scale of the present-day historian observer's uh, long durée uh, apprehension of trans-territorial, trans-continental, trans-generational histories, and what might seem to be the more local, proximate histories of the participant agents right. in context. Um, how do you? What's your sense of how one puts together those two? Uh, Timescales or, or scopes of analysis. I'm re reminded in my neck of the woods, Brian Fagan, as an climatological archaeologist, is very fond of pointing to the disjunction between oral memory of climatic shift about ten generations and anything more than ten generations, sort of somehow outside of the visibility of people in question. I'm not going to defend that proposition; it's just his own, but it points to this sort of temporal scalar uh, disjunction that we have to negotiate. Right, and I think the, the question about climate change that a lot of uh, scholars have brought up, how do you visualize climate change? You can feel climate change, you can, you can touch climate change, you can sense climate change, but as a discipline that works with uh, visual representations, how do you visualize, let's say, 10,000 years of history? What are the tools that this discipline offers? Certainly digital art history or, or big data can offer a way of thinking about this longer durée history. But the question of memory, the question of memory, and what I would like to highlight is the question of the memory that, that land has. In a way, one has to also, along with human memory, one has to learn how to read the environment, read, read marks on stone, marks on, on, on the river basin, and how that can provide a way of thinking about longer durée history. And uh, within the context of South Asia, we can, especially within the realm of the study of Hinduism, uh, a lot of mythological practices do work with this idea of a longer durée uh, history of the environment. For instance, in this particular site, the river moved at some point in the BCE. But even in the 16th century, even today, there are memories in terms of how places are named mm -hmm. of the river. So in a way, the, one has to start thinking about reading land and what sort of aesthetic practices can emerge if we try to think about the earth itself as an archive. And that, in a certain way, brings together this question of our temporalities of one generation versus this sort of a longer durée history that is central to thinking about climate change. I remember in the conference that you and I organized in eco-art history a while back, it was striking how many of our presentations of our participants did circle back to reading the rocks, as it were, the, 
questions of rock art, of petroglyphs, of marking, of the, recoup the use, use and reuse of stone. Um, in your, in your, uh, and in your presentation here, you just re referenced the same kind of process. Second disjunction that you pointed to in your book is, uh, let me just read a paragraph from, again, from the intro. Um, and you again referenced it in your opening comments about dealing with a pre-Anthropocene, that is early modern uh, history. There is, of course, an epistemic difference between art produced under the menacing shadows of the expanding glaciers of the Little Ice Age and art produced under the existential threat imposed by humans themselves in the epoch of the Anthropocene. For while the Little Ice Age was induced by geological forces, the Anthropocene was prompted by anthropogenic factors, albeit on the scale of the geological. I'm curious to hear you say a little bit about uh, something that's been riling up uh, scholars working in my neck of the woods, namely um, sort of setting aside the discourse of the Anthropocene and thinking more broadly about anthropogenic modifications of the planet that might have deep prehistories. Would you be prepared to speak about the anthropogenic effects of the visual practices you're, you're dealing with, um, perhaps malign, perhaps beneficial, perhaps neutral, but nonetheless, the causality that is so important for thinking about the Anthropocene from the human to, to natural. Um, would you draw out particular examples from your project that you would think of as having the status of anthropogenic modification? Absolutely, and, and uh, for instance, the chapter on forests looks at deforestation that happens in the region in the 18th century. And I argue that as deforestation destroys the forests of this pilgrimage site, uh, there is an attempt to try to think about how one talks about sacred groves, and you have the construction of these new groves in the 18th century that are emulating the forests that are there in literature. So literary practices talk about Braj as this vana or this forest where Krishna roams with his devotees. But the irony of the fact is by the 18th century, there are no forests. So how do you negotiate that crisis in mythopoetics with deforestation? And what I do in this chapter on forests is look at both painting and architecture, but also gardens, and see how artists, poets, pilgrims, uh, patrons are trying to negotiate this, uh, this crisis that is both mythological but also environmental. And I argue that as the groves, as the forests are being reduced, architecture is changing. And there's a new architecture where ornamentation or the depiction of plants and vines become important. But also the construction of these new gardens in the 18th century where one has to literally negotiate one's bodily presence. I mean, it's a longer argument, but essentially the idea of this idyllic, pastoral, bucolic landscape was a human construction in the 18th century to, to, to recreate the, the forests of poetry. 1240, and I see Tim waving. So we, we are now going to turn to the audience with the roving mic. Please, if you have thoughts or questions, interventions, comments. Uh, thanks, uh, Shugata. This is a very thought-provoking sort of thing. But I, I'm interested in, in your take on the, you know, th this very archaic notion of the personhood of natural phenomena, right? Uh, the Govardhan Hill is, of course, Giri Govardhan is a special case, but so is the Yamuna Devi. I mean, the Yamuna, actually, the Yamuna does have subjectivity. The Yamuna is also a goddess. 
uh, and can cry for help, theoretically. But, and, and this is ingrained in people's thoughts, if, in Hinduism and so on, the literature. But how do you get people to understand that or generalize this? Because certain spots like that are, that are kind of fetishized, like Govardhana, are subjected to these certain kind of care and protection. On the other hand, you know, you can love these rivers to death by right. the offerings into them, Amchat and so on, and uh, actually being destroyed through the Anthropocene uh, as well as geologically because we're going to lose those glaciers, right? But they're also polluting the river grossly and this is the cry for help. So is there any way of connecting that with people's sense of these things? Uh, Bob, so this is sort of a question that I have been thinking about. Is the question of uh, how do you talk about, let's say, the landscape as, as alive? And my, my concern with trying to generalize is to move out of my specific site of Braj is because this is what Modi does. This is right-wing fascism. This is eco-fascism of the Prime Minister of India who stands by a Varanasi in the pilgrimage site of Varanasi and tweets that he will save Ganga Ma at the same time when he is uh, producing these genocidal uh, sort of riots against Muslims. So my, 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 my fear of trying to sort of move from the specific to a general is that it reduces India or South Asia to a Hindu epistemology. And when we think about, let's say, a site like Varanasi, it has a Muslim history as well. So how do we negotiate the Muslim history of Varanasi with this idea of the goddess as sacred, as living, as immanent? And of course, this is a form of greenwashing, and Modi did nothing, even though he, his whole electoral campaign was based on saving the sacred landscape of India. He did nothing about it, and his, his a whole electoral cycle has passed. So I... And again, it's not just India. I mean, that's what we see in many parts of the world in Christian evangelical groups in the US are doing the very climate denialism in the US, again, using Christian theology. So I wonder if we would like to move out of the specific to a more general. But certainly, I am interested in thinking about ways of of trying to use this project or the, this, the, the, the book that I have to think about conservation discourses today. But I would be worried about using a Hindu epistemology for ecological conservation, precisely because of right-wing politics in India. Well, first, thank you. And uh, so this extends Whitney's question about the temporal horizon of landscape and, um, in and, and the temporal horizon of devotional religion. So I mean, in part, I'm thinking through Jack Hawley's you know, revisionist history of bhakti of, of Devotion, which centers its, you know, much of the uh, its critical momentum in the period that you're engaging, and you're making me think about Holly's work in a very different way, and in part, the the plasticity of a landscape, the sense of its radical change. To what extent do conceptions of play, that is, lila, etc., uh, central to the poetics of devotion, are they part of the? the formal, you know, plasticity you're trying to, to show us? I think it's central. I mean, play is central to, to this relationship. I mean, in this forest, for instance, you, I mean, the, there are beautiful t descriptions of how you play with the, with the sacred vines of, of Braj and how you, you're, you have a corporeal bodily engagement. So the idea of ludic play, pleasure, 
becomes uh, fundamental to think about the eco-aesthetics that I'm talking about here. And I think, in a way, there is a lot of theorization in, on play, not just within Bhakti South Asia traditions, but from animal studies, from uh, other arenas where, where this intersection between the human and the non-human uh, can, can be played out. So for me, play, both with its deep theology within bhakti and leela, but also play as a political practice that has been used by scholars in many fields, becomes an enabling technique to think about how do I relate to this forest? How do I relate to these plants? I play with them. Could you go into the mythology of uh, Krishna as the mountain? And I was also wondering if there is any, um, there are pre-Hindu elements to that. Absolutely, and scholars have argued about uh, sort of pre-Hindu Naga worship, serpent worship, for instance, or even the worship of the hill, which is what scholars would argue. I have written on early Christian, uh, <laughs> early, early Vaishnavism. Uh, tree worship in early Christianity, too. True, yeah. <laughs> that what happens with, the, let's say, in the first centuries of the Common Era is that pre, uh, sort of, Indigenous practices of tree worship, uh, indigenous practices of uh, rock worship are appropriated by, by uh, Vaishnavism to articulate this sort of a new relationship with the land. So certainly there is a deep connection both with uh, indigenous cultures of thinking about Naga serpent worship, indigenous cultures of rock worship, tree worship, and that becomes part of early, early, uh, early uh, bhakti. But again, I would also say that things change in the 16th century. Where I am interested is the, is the intersection between Islamic aesthetics and the bringing in of the Mughals not to think about a long continuity that was somehow untouched, the sort of a longer dury sort of a history of Hinduism, but Hinduism is also transforming. So for me, the temple architecture that we see here is both in conversation with that past but also in conversation with Islamic notions of nature, of paradise, of gardens, Islamic gardens. So I think one has to see both diachronically and synchronically. Question? Let me push you then, Shigata, on the notion of a non-anthropocentric non aesthetics. Um, because some might argue that it's been a crucial way of thinking about the specifically aesthetic domain that humans make unreciprocated portrayals of the other, of the non-human, of the natural. And so if you were to move decisively from an anthropocentric aesthetics to a non-anthropocentric one, we might have to imagine situations in which the other, that is the non-human, the animal, does in fact reciprocally portray its other, namely the human. Um, what would that look like? in the kinds of materials you're working with. Right. So that's the next book talk on my second book. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did, that was not a planned segue. <laughs> so, uh, so, so we work with, with material that is decidedly anthropocentric, art, architecture, literary cultures. But I, I am trying to think about how do we talk about, let's say, art painting, and to see it as a transcript of the intersection between the non-human and the human. That is, how do we rethink the history of art where we see the, the natural world not just as an object of study, but 
pressuring the artist, pressuring the human actor. So for me then painting, in my next book for instance, I'm looking at paintings of animals and trying to argue that we also have to see that particular representation of animals as sort of the, the product of that intersection between the human, the artist, and the animal who's being portrayed. And again, drawing from philosophical conversation on play, uh, we can talk about how the, the paint, a painting can be a, a product of the play between the human and the non-human. So that's what I'm doing in my second book, trying to look at Indian Ocean histories and looking at animals and other, form, other life forms and how did they push this archive that we art historians work with and what new histories can emerge if we think about a anim non-human animal as a co-producer. Mm -hmm. Tim. So I was wondering if you could talk about um, uh, nature, landscape, and time. Um, that seems to me an interesting way to think about some of these issues, um, given the tension between the way in which time is, has been basically taken over by productivity, capitalism, notions of progress versus natural rhythms. I'm also thinking of even, this is a, an, a, a, an off the wall reference, but your, your talk made me think of it. I mean, there's a, this extraordinary moment in, in one of Montaigne's essays, his essay on the cannibals, where he talks about how the, the, the river near his home in southern France has changed course. And he takes, he, he expands from this to this astonishing sense of the kind of relativity of knowledge that we thought it was over here and now it's over there. And that, le that gets him eventually to the moment in which he's able to accept the alterity of the South American natives in a way which is, you know, completely decenters a kind of European notion. So there's a, there's a sense of kind of reading the landscape and using the land, using the movement of the landscape and the temporality of the landscape as a different way of conceiving knowledge. Could you Absolutely. talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, and I'm glad that this uh, this image, this sort of this is on the screen. Uh, what for me is very interesting is this idea of a sort of a shared space of sentience between humans and plants emerge in the 18th century. And this is not sort of a primordial timeless space. This is precisely when, if you think about Thomas Gainsborough, you think about Raymond Williams and how the countryside is being produced in England as, as this bucolic pastoral, pastoral landscape, precisely because of new capital formations. So the more there is industrial labor, the more land is being used, you have this push towards pastorality. Now, we could, in a way, read this as part of that larger colonial project of imagining the land or landscape that begins in 18th century industrial England. Now, what I try to argue that this is using some uh, a historian called Ranajit Guho, who writes, who's sort of the founder of Subaltern Studies Collective, that this is a history from below. So certainly there is a uh, top-down history of, of environmental governance in the 18th century that generates this idea of pastorality and bucolicity. But what happens if we think about uh, other practices at the margins of those statist, industrialized, modern practices that are really global at this point? So whether we see it as a practice of alterity or a practice from below, and what sort of new histories of the environment can emerge if we listen to these voices and listen to these new practices. And again, in South America, in Asia, in Africa, precisely at the moment of, of global capital formation, we see 
a whole range of practices that resist that top-down history of the environment. So I think it's a very interesting question is that this is precisely the birth of modernity. It's the 18th century. Yeah, that's a wonderful point because, you know, in, in entire modern, late, early modern and modern Krishna cult is a, a kind of nostalgia for a kind of imagined pastoral past uh, and, and has, you know, terrifying implications for con uh, contemporary situation with this entire bovocentric uh, formation of, of Hinduism. And, you know, going back to this kind of cult of the cow and this kind of pastoralist, uh, imagined Vraj and Vindavan thing. Uh, and I think this is occurring around the same time that you're seeing you know, that kind of pastoral developments in England, also harking back to an imagined Greco-Roman pastoralism, where you see then all these, the, the, the literature and the plays and the poems about shepherds and swains. And, uh, and I think it is a, re a response to uh, modernity, in a sense, or early modernity, right, you might say. Right. And in India, the colonial science. I mean, this is when science as a, as a, as a practice is emerging. You have colonial medicine, you have modern science. So this, this pastorality that we see here, now, I am not sure if I see it as resistance, but certainly it's a different form of imagining the landscape. And again, so talking about cows, so I had a chapter on cows in my PhD, which I refused to bring in in my book. <laughs> we shall not. <laughs> Do note that there's hardly one of your slides that doesn't have at least one monkey in it. There are monkeys. I, I, I write about monkeys, peacocks, no cows. <laughs> we have time for a couple of more questions from the floor. Right here. Um, thank you, Professor, for such a thought-provoking presentation. And uh, going back to the anthropocentric and non-anthropocentric aesthetics, um, it's really interesting how you talked about the mountain being worshipped as Krishna himself, right? So um, giving inert objects life is nothing new in art history, right? We talked a lot in class about how Hindu gods, um, the statues of them, they're only like alive once priests consecrate them, right? But um, how do you think, th so that's with human intervention and human modification, that rock is like carved and consecrated by human, while here, this like natural m mountain, like with zero human modification is as well worshiped as an object in addition to being a sacred site. So um, how do these two like um, perspectives or methods differ and how do they relate? Well, that's a very good question and as we've talked in class like literally before a, a sculpture is consecrated it is a piece of stone it's supposed to be inert right but it's only after a certain ritual that that a piece of stone can become a god. Now what I, and again, this idea of mountains being worshipped is also not very new. You have practices of mountain worship. But what I wanted to do in this book is try to look at climate change and see how a pressure on, on the land because of certain cli climate, because of the, cli uh, the, the changing climate, led to a new theological practice. So we could go back to the temples that we've discussed in class, for instance, in Kajurao, and see if 10th century climate change transformed Hindu practices. And that's, these are projects that can be done, and it would be exciting to rethink all of, these, all of these sites that we have discussed in class. Certainly, Buddhist sites, we talked about Sachi in class, and there is a scholar who's working on hydro infrastructure and looking at pilgrimage, 
looking at uh, temp uh, stupa worship, but seeing how hydro infrastructure in informed, let's say, early Buddhist practice. So the question then is to think about climate change and the natural environment at an intersection of all of these ritual theological practices that we have discussed about tree worship, stone worship. Final question? If not, then I'm going to ask a final question. Um, as you know, that there is in the world of ecological, environmental, cultural, and art, art histories, a whole other strand, theoretically speaking, namely an evo-devo, evolutionarily developmental Darwinian, a Darwinian historical aesthetics in which um, an extra human process, for example, of sexual selection drives an his, the historical account of art making. Um, and I, I'm not sure that that's incompatible with the kind of eco art history, environmental art history you're interested in, but I'd be curious about your take on that, that there is this other way of proceeding uh, eco-environmentally and evolutionarily in a much more strongly Darwinian language. How, how, do, what's your, how do you feel about that? Just... I mean, we've had distinguished visitors on campus just recently defending their book-length studies of this particular problematic. Right. And we'll have them back. Right. I mean, it's sort of the, my, the, the concern. I mean, there is, a, there is a fear of that sort of a evolutionary model of art history or dark, dark, because it very quickly, sleep, uh, uh, very quickly slips into sort of fascism because we have heard, seen over and again in the last 150 years how environmental determinism and fascism work very close hand in hand. But certainly uh, putting aside the sort of that, that strand, whether we talk about Nazi uh, greenwashing, which is also part of that sort of evolutionary deterministic uh, logic of thinking about of the human body, but also the environment. Uh, I am, for instance, I'm looking at species that are now extinct or have become extinct. And what can art history, for instance, the dodo. So my book on the next book on the notion is looking at the dodo and trying to think about the history of the dodo, which has to be a natural history, but also a history of the art. So species extinction is a place where I'm curious to think about these intersections between bio-histories, natural histories, and... We definitely share that interest. I'm very interested in the way in which the actual practice of making pictures of the natural world enables human beings to gain genetic control over other species and eventually, in some cases, eliminate them. So I think our, we'll be in conversation about that project. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.